Welcome to the Rap Race to Buy podcast, where we discuss money, mindset, real estate investing, and ways to achieve financial independence. Whether you are a rookie or a veteran needing new ideas for investing or creating side hustles, you're in the right place. Here to challenge you to think out of the box, your hosts, Felipe Mejia and Diego Corzo. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Rat Race to Five podcast. Diego, dude, today we have an amazing flipper. Her name is Zasha. She's crushing it. And she talks about uh, how she was pushed by one of her professors to do bigger and better, even when she gets out of college. She talks about how she left a six-figure job in Hawaii, the security of that job. I take that back. I don't think it was six figures, but it was pretty close. But she took like that security in Hawaii to jump into flipping, which is wild. It's such a great story. Make sure you listen to the end. No, yeah, and what's what's really good too is that she shares all about how she was able to partner up with people, like what her unfair advantage was, yeah. and just in the three years that she's been flipping, uh, how she's been able to partner up with people to be able to flip around seventeen or 20, 20 properties. So this is a great story. Yeah, there's so much in this podcast, so I'm super excited uh, to get started. But re- real quick, man, let's talk about REI Call Center where we have amazing cold callers that are helping people wholesale, flip, buy their own deals at a discounted price. We recently did a post today about a guy who did a $25,000 assignment fee this month and he's been with REI Call Center for three months. Three months is gonna cost him a little bit less than 4,500 bucks for a return of 25,000. Seems pretty acceptable. Guys, if you want a cold caller for you or your business, definitely hit us up on Instagram, shoot me a DM, we can definitely get into that. But let's to get into Zasha. Zasha, welcome to the Rat Race to Five podcast. I'm super excited that you're here. But publicly, I want to apologize for being 37 minutes late. I'm driving up to my Airbnb in Gatlinburg, uh, and I lost an hour through the mountains. So schedule, guys, make sure that you know what you know standard time and central time and all that changes. So Zasha, Diego, what's up, guys? How are you? Felipe, Felipe, dude, it sounds, well, it looks like you definitely took that Latino time for real. Oh, my Going up late. Zasha, is it like that in Hawaii? Like, it's like, hey, I'll be there at 3, and it's really like 3.15, 3, 3.30? No, same thing. They say Hawaiian time. Hawaiian time. That's hilarious. Now, Zasha, I do have a question because um, I, I, I'm learning a little bit more about the Hawaiian culture. And the only reason I say that is because I'm following this guy on TikTok who does a lot of like, hey, this is what you would expect in Hawaii. And he was like, oh, let's go get in my Yoda. And he's talking about a Toyota, his truck. And he does like a lot of these like really fun things. So tell us a little bit about living the lifestyle in Hawaii, and then we're going to bring it back to like, who were you in high school and college? And we're really going to get to know you, but give us a 30,000 from you. What is it like living in paradise? It definitely is hard not to want to go to the beach every day and relax. You know, the weather is pretty much beautiful year round, and that's why so many people come to visit. But it is a laid back lifestyle. There's a lot of good people, you know, when you go to the store it's like auntie and uncle you refer to people as and it's just a very close community so it's easy to kind of chill and you know take your time but also when you have goals and things like people like you know me you have to really stay focused because it's hard not, not i bet it's hard to focus in hawaii i, I, I don't know if i can do it <laughs> diego's been to puerto rico and i don't know how he, he said he went on a work trip for two weeks to puerto rico and I don't know how productive he was, right? It was like <laughs> six o'clock and he was out dancing, doing his thing. So I bet Puerto Rico and Hawaii probably have some island, you know, vibes. Um, I don't know that I could focus, but let's take it back. Um, 
Sasha, what were you like in high school and college? I'm sure when you were in school, you weren't like, I can't wait to flip homes, right? Like, I bet that wasn't the vibe. So like, what, what, what were you like in high school and college? Give us a little bit of backstory. Sure. So in high school, I was actually, I lived in the housing and I had to take care of my brother and my sister. So it was a little bit more serious and okay. definitely not, you know, too focused on going to college and didn't really even know about college. And it was actually one of my teachers who encouraged me and was like, hey, you need to do, you know, take that next step, go to college, get out of here, you know, change your environment. And for me, it was me realizing like I didn't have to have money to go to college. I always thought that I did. But he introduced me to, you know, the college counselor. And back then there wasn't these like, you know, college fairs or anything at our school. It was kind of like just graduate so that you have, or get your GED and then just start working as soon as possible. So okay. when when I was in high school, I wasn't really driven, but I knew that I wanted to get off the island per se and do something with my life that was different from what I was living. And when I went to college, it was a huge eye opener to a bigger world, right? You're coming from a small island. I think we only have like 100,000 people here and you don't really experience much. And so even different cultures and, you know, different ways of doing driving on freeways and highways and things like that, it really uh, got me to thinking about, OK, what am I going to do now? Like I went into college trying to just do the easiest thing. I think I went into liberal arts or something, you know, the basics of what people go there for to do to get in and get out. But I got a D in psychology. So I knew that wasn't the route that I was supposed to go. And I found out that I really like A plus B equals C. Like I like very tangible things and predictable outcomes versus, you know, why is the sky blue or is it really green? You know, so I, I found out that my thinking was very logical. Um, and from there, I got jobs at like the bookstore and did that whole kind of thing to kind of make money. But I got a job as a counselor in the College of Engineering and my boss was full on women engineers, this and that. And I was like, I'm not smart enough to do that. And so she's like, just take a class. You're already helping these people with their you know, college work or their schoolwork. So I know you can do it. And so I did. I ended up liking math. What a surprise. And from there, just kind of went full force and just decided I'm going to take this path with engineering and go that route. I said, I love that because, you know, it's interesting um, that you did get some some guidance through school and, and you figured out like who you were and what you liked. And I think a lot of times that's important for college. If someone's going to go to college, in my opinion, it, it's it's for that. It's for the networking, finding out who you are and what you're doing. Um, so, so I think that's awesome. Now, you said earlier that you are a person that likes more the like one plus one equals two versus why is something so would you consider and this is just for my own knowledge would you consider yourself an integrator or a visionary i am i think i'm a little bit of both but i because i don't like bookkeeping work i don't like really keeping track of things i like to be outdoors and doing things meeting people and networking so i i think i just like to think logically whatever that category falls into but i believe i'm more of a visionary than an actual integrator i'll give you my prediction by the end of the podcast and you can tell me you're absolutely wrong but like i'm i want to know why the sky is blue more than i don't care how one plus one equals two 
That's Diego. He's our visionary in our business and everything we do. I, I'm the I'm the implementer. I'm sorry. You're the, the I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're the implementer, right? I'm more the visionary. I'm looking at the sky, figuring out how we can help our clients or how what else can we do to benefit, you know, how else can we give back more? Diego's okay. If, if we do this though, like this is the consequences, Felipe, three, three months down the road, this is what that's really going to cost us. And I'm like, I want, like, I'm more of like the visionary and like Diego's more implementation. Uh, so I, I, that's why I was like, ah, she's probably more of an implementer, like based on that. But we'll see more towards the end. Cause I, like you said, you might be both. And there is people that are both, um, they're a rare breed and hard to find, but you, they, they become bajillionaires. So I would be super crazy. I'd, I'd love this story. Um, so, okay. So that was high school and then college. When you got out of college, did you go to work? What was, what, what did you do? What, what was your next step? So initially I wanted to stay. I had went to Cal State Long Beach. I wanted to stay in that area, LA. I like the high pace, you know, um, society. And I tried to get a job. This was in 2009. I tried to get a job at the port of Long Beach, but there was like a hiring freeze. You know, it's when the housing market was a little unstable. So I moved home. I was able to get a job here, but it was like, you know, I would was getting paid half of what I would have if I stayed in LA. So that was like a difficult jump. Um, and then the housing price here is actually more than it was to live in LA. So that was something else to that I realized early on was like, you know, the what you could get paid here versus the cost of living was a huge difference. Yeah. So I always was kind of thinking of other ways that I could make money or do things on the side so that I could offset the expenses of living here too. Uh, but that's kind of what I did. I just jumped into a full-time job right when I came home. Did you have any entrepreneurial spirit when you're in high school and college? Like, did you sell gum out of your locker or anything like that that you can think of? Because I know a lot of people have those funny stories. Did you do anything like that in high school and college? Well, it's funny is that I did over here, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever had a spam musubi. So uh, it's basically. <laughs> wait, I'm not going to let you go over that. Back yeah, then. I have <laughs> no idea what she just said. For, the, for people listening. So a spam musubi is basically, you know, the canned spam. You cut it mm. up and cook it. You put rice in it with it and then you wrap it in seaweed like nori. Um, it's like Asian, you know, almost like a sushi, but then there's spam in it. Yeah. And people love it here. It's a local favorite. And yeah. so every morning I would get up at four o'clock before I have to go to school. We would cook this pot of rice, cook the spam, make that. And then my mom would actually sell it at her job and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever extra money minus all the yeah. costs and everything to make it, she would give to us. So, so it was oh. me, my brother, my sister. So that's kind of how our like side hustle was when I was in high school and they were, you know, in elementary and stuff like that. So I think I always was kind of thinking of ways I knew at school, we used to sell candy too, until, you know, we, the teachers told us we couldn't technically not do that. So maybe after school, we sold a little candies, but yeah. I, I was always kind of thinking of a route to make extra money. And I was actually in uh, videography. And so my teacher, the one who told me that, that I could go to college and really encouraged me. I actually was working for him part time at the school after school and editing wedding and birthday videos for one of his former students who owned a company. Diego, did you have a side hustle in, in high school and college? Because I noticed that a lot of people that are entrepreneurs now regarding real estate or, or, or maybe even just business 
had some type of hustle in school. Did you have something like that, Diego? Yeah, in uh and that that was exactly what I was gonna say because I sold candy in tenth grade and then we got caught and right. we sold it because we wanted Apple computers, we wanted Macs and we couldn't afford that. So oh, me and my funny. buddy, we would go, we would get one, we would get his mom to buy chocolate in Costco, yeah, the big, the big box, <laughs> and then just like we will sell them before lunch, during lunch, after lunch. Um, and then, so that was one thing. And then when I got to college, I did, so I would set the curve in some of the classes and then I would create the study guides. So later for exam number two, for example, I will tell all the students, Hey guys, I sold this. I set the curve. You, I'm going to create a study guide so that you guys can get A's as well. It'll be five bucks or 10 bucks. And that's how I was able to pay for, for part of college. So getting creative. So check this out. <laughs> This is why Diego is a realtor and I'm a wholesaler. This is why Diego is an implementer and I'm a visionary. Diego, do you know what I would have done about the curve? I would have said, hey guys, if the class comes up with $250, I'll lower my score to make sure that we all can get the best. The, I'll lower the curve purposely. So see, I would have done something different than sell my study sheet. Yeah. But I like... I like getting the A's, so I was like, I'm good. Dude. I always I'm tell good. people on the podcast, Asha, that two or three people's names should be on my college degree. I did not do it alone. Right. Sasha's like, oh my gosh, who is interviewing me? She's not. <laughs> well, I Actually, for college, I just was trying to pass. I was just trying to get uh, out of there. Like towards the end, um, I did. So while I, and another thing, while I was in college, I did have uh, my first child, my daughter, while I was a sophomore. Yeah. And so during that, I had to juggle. Um, luckily, at Cal State Long Beach, they did have a early education program where they would let the students and of course, they had some teachers and stuff in there as well. Yeah. But, you know, do like a daycare for the teachers and the students going to the college. So that was very unique at that school and really helped me. I had to take night classes and like switch off with some of my friends. It was kind of a crazy time because um, when I look back at it, you know, just getting through that experience, I still graduated. It took me a year and a half longer just because I had to maneuver around um, my daughter's care and things like that. But it was like we formed a little community like me and my friends that I had made in college and they would help me with her. And so I just from that time, too, I just knew that, you know, networking or just meeting. There's actually really good people that are out there and even throughout my life like how my teachers and my um, my supervisor at the College of Engineering was like, you can do this, you can do this, like always pushing you forward. You just have to be around and surround yourself by those people. So yeah. I think that's so cool that your college did that with uh, your daughter. That, that's amazing. Um, let's move on to the real estate portion about how you fell into real estate, but I do have one last question. Can you tell us about the power of mentors? Because it sounds like you had a teacher that maybe you considered a mentor, I'm not sure, but definitely sounds like she pushed you in the right direction. And then maybe let's transition that into how you fell in love or how you fell into real estate. So I it started off with my high school teacher. It was, it was a guy and um, he was the one who was kind of pushing me after he seen me 
like staying late after school, editing these videos on the side to make some side money. He would let me take those big Apple computers with the colored backs. He would let me take it home at night and then bring it back. So he was really supportive in, in me just getting me to graduate and then also getting me to the next level in my life. So I feel like that was the, the game changer in me believing in myself, going the next step. And then also once I got my job, had another mentor or, you know, somebody, a supporter who was like, Hey, I see more in you than just doing this. Like you have a lot to offer other people. So why don't you take that route as well? See where you go with it. So I think just having that self-confidence too, I didn't really have too much of it growing up, but through those mentors, they gave me that push to succeed and go to the next level. Now, um, I, I got into real estate because I was kind of looking for something different. I had been 10 years at my engineering job at that point. It was really stable, you know, health insurance. I have my family, but I always was thinking, okay, there's more to life than this, which a lot of people are okay living, you know, doing the same thing every day, but it just didn't, it, it didn't feel like this was meant to be. And so once I looked into real estate, I kind of tried it on my own. About my first rental, my first flip, and they were condos. So they were, you know, smaller scale. And that's what my husband told me was like, it's like, I'm okay with you doing this, you know, side thing while you're working full time, but like, you know, don't put us in danger. And so that's why I picked up two small ones and just was like on the internet, just like, okay, I want to buy a flip and I want to buy a rental. I want to see what I like better. And I just kind of jumped into it. Um, but obviously after the first two, there was like no time for my family. I was every day after work or at Lowe's on my lunch break, dropping off contractors stuff. And then on the weekends, you know, wrapping things up, doing dump runs and things like that. So after that, my husband was like, okay, if you're going to continue to do this while working full time, you have to get some sort of systems um, in place so that you know, there's more balance because right now you're just all into that and not spending time with us. And so that kind of hit me. It's like, okay, this is the whole reason why I want, you know, to, to find a different path because I'll have more time, but that's not what I'm doing right now. So that is what led me into um, Ryan Pineda, who's my mentor now in 2019. And he really guided me into, okay, you know, he's all about kind of like work-life balance as well. And that really clicked to me and just gives me really good advice on, you know, he doesn't, he's not in the day-to-day -day with me or what I'm doing, but he definitely is like, hey, do this. And just gives me specific things to help me with my business. I like that a lot. There's a couple of things in there that I want to dissect. So like, first, a lot of people are going to ask and wonder hey my spouse is not on board with me doing real estate i'm a woman i don't think i should get in real estate my husband should do that uh, and this isn't me this is just like conversations i've been in the business a long conversations i've heard so i want i want to get your input on this and i, I and we diego and i are, are huge on empowering women in rat race to step up step forward take action so oh yeah tell us do you mind digging into that conversation a little bit more if you're comfortable with how that conversation really went with your husband, not just him telling you like, hey, just make sure you don't mess up. I'm sure there was more than that. And, and, and I think there's value there for the ladies listening who are like, 
I don't know if I should tell my husband that I want to do this or I'm nervous or that they don't feel like they should where I would be like, hell yeah, get out there and tell them like, look, this is what's going to happen here. The numbers, let's take action. Obviously, don't put your family in a tough situation, but numbers don't lie. They tell a story. So tell us a little bit about how you had that conversation with your husband so that maybe other women can be like, yo, if she can do it, I, I know I can. Right. So what was that like? So it all started because at my, you know, as a civil engineer, I was running projects. I was working 60 to 70 hour weeks already. And then I was going into work on Saturdays and, you know, he was having to spend time with the kids or watch them, which is fine with us. But we were already looking for that out to get me working less. So I said, so I initially, we, he agreed upon it because I was like, look, I'm working 60 hours a week, you know, you're having to, I leave at 6.45 a.m. I come home like at 7 p.m. sometimes and you're having to play like Mr. Dad with the kids. And so I want to buy back my time, find something else that I can do to replace all these hours because I went in on a Saturday and I was trying to wrap something up. I couldn't get it done. I went in on Monday and told my supervisor was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't get this done. I'm so sorry, I'll finish it you know, this morning. And she's like, oh no, I came in yesterday. And so for me, in my logical thinking, I was like, dude, that's going to be me. I'm going to, I'm already working six days a week. Once I, the more I move up, the more time I'm going to have to spend here. So that was, you know, for me and my husband, it was a huge discussion between us to be like, okay, he obviously was not okay with me working as much as I was and wanted more family time. So when I brought up the real estate thing and brought up, you know, I had been searching on bigger pockets and had him listen to a few podcasts, just kind of slowly reeling him into that life or, you know, that different kind of uh, career choice. And he was okay with it. He, he trusted my judgment and knew that, you know, my ultimate goal was to have more work life balance. And yeah, that's just kind of how the conversation flowed. But of course, when I bought the first property, he was scared and he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're taking on all this debt. And you know, what if this goes wrong and what if that goes wrong? But he also owns his own company as well. So it was an easier conversation and he's a plumbing contractor. So he had friends already in construction that if I couldn't handle anything or if I ever was in a tough spot, he had the, um, he had the connections to, to help me you hire your husband to do work no the plumbing contractor and he does not do any of my plumbing work i love it and it's not because he doesn't do good work it's because he's probably you're probably going to hold him to a really high standard and then <laughs> i love I'm well, not gonna I'm a, so i'm a, i see the numbers and i'm all about the budgeting part right and yeah. he's all about this is his trade this is his life he loves it his passion we have seven employees we have a huge warehouse everything like that but he's always going to do his best i'm like okay we don't have to use like the most expensive materials or you know yeah we don't have to have i bet you guys like butt heads you're like you know what i'm just gonna hire a whole another plumber sweetheart you do your thing that's hilarious sorry diego do you have something to say <laughs> yeah i would i wanted to see um to ask about that 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 first deal um mm -hmm. what were the numbers how did you find it um the first one was a rental so what was the income all of that stuff okay so the first uh flip that i bought it was at the courthouse auction so mm -hmm. my i had heard about like you know courthouse auctions from my uncle he had bought his house from there and so when i first got into investing i just started going seeing what it was like and it was really like 
I don't want to say dog eat dog, but everybody was, it was so tense to be there because everybody's bidding against each other. Um, but I got, I ended up winning the bid for this condo and everybody who was there was like, oh, that's too high. And I was like, dude, did you guys go there? Like it has a nice view out to the banana patch. Like there is a lot of things from me living in a condo. I know what I look like. I look for in a condo. It had two parking spaces for a two bedroom. It was right next to like the emergency um, parking thing. So you didn't have anybody to your left and it was an easy way to get there. But of course it was um, a foreclosure. So it was, you know, all the cabinets needed to re be replaced. It was, the yard was overgrown. It was a bottom floor uh, condo. And so I got it for, I think around 312. And then I put about 40,000 in renovations and then we sold it at 490. So wow. I made, yeah, I made over a hundred thousand dollars on that deal. And so from that one, my husband was like, okay, maybe you can keep doing this. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. That's fine. Right? No, <laughs> I was um, only, I was only making $70,000 at my engineering job for a right. whole year. And this only took me 45 days, 30 days to renovate, wow. 15 days to sell to a cash buyer who were retirees who wanted to move to Maui. So I think that for me, just logically, I knew the numbers going in and I've, I kind of knew other features of the condo that I knew would add to the price. So I think that's why I came out ahead in that one. That's really cool. Now, um, from my understanding, uh, is that when you buy a house from the auction, you do have to buy it cash, correct? No, no? so Maui or Hawaii is a little different than that. So okay. what happens is you have to come with 10% of whatever your um, bid price, your highest price is going to be. So you have to have 10%. They take that. And then when then there's another um, hearing, it's called a commissioner's hearing that happens next. So you win the bid there. Then you wait for the commissioner's hearing and other people can still bid um, higher than you at that commissioner's hearing as well. So at that hearing, they say, okay, you now have the rights to buy this property. This is your amount of time. So it's not always you have to come with it that day. They oftentimes can push it out, you know, like a couple of weeks, 30 days. It sometimes takes a year. It just depends on when the court, you know, whatever else they have going on closes that deal. Cause wow. some of them do um, bankruptcies and things like that. So they're holding your 10% that whole time, but yeah, you don't have to come up with, you know, $312,000 cash right away. You can, you can wait. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Cause here in Nashville, you got to have all the money up front. I think you got 24 hours to do it or they'll take next bid. So that's huge. <laughs> I didn't know you had a limited time. Yeah. Now, um, okay. So you, you bought the property. Um, what were the renovations that you had to do and what did you do yourself and what did you outsource to, to other people? Oh, good question. Right. So basically everything except for a few dump runs. And what I was doing before was I was hiring guys. So we had to do full on demo. So rip out the entire kitchen cabinets, rip out all the flooring, the carpet, you know, um, the bathroom, take out everything, retile it. It was a, basically a full gut of this two bedroom, um, one and a half bath condo. It was probably around 800 square feet. And it did have a small like 10 by 10 uh, yard that I knew would be appealing to people because a lot of condos don't really have yards, but this one did. And um, 
I would do like some dump runs and stuff. And then I was paying them labor, like just straight cash labor. And that's why I was able to keep it down. I would, I have to pay the taxes on it. And then I was also buying the materials straight from those in Home Depot. So paying that directly um, on my credit cards and going that route to kind of save money for that project. I love that. I do, I do a lot of, um, I, I try to work with contractors that, will, that most of them won't, but I really try hard to put as much as I can on my credit card versus paying them so I can get points, help my credit score. And just, I think there's a lot of advantages that people don't realize with using credit cards. Uh, you obviously gotta be careful, um, but I think that's, that's powerful. Sasha, quick question. Um, what would you say to someone that wants to get started flipping higher dollar properties, like the ones in Hawaii? I'm sure you're not buying an $80,000 home like you know we can sometimes. So what would you say to that? Because I feel like, is the risk higher or is it just numbers? Because some people are like, it's just zeros, like it's gonna be fine. I, to me, it seems a little bit more more risque, right? So like, ris, ris, risky, risque, it's risky, more risky, risky sorry. Risky. Um, what would you say? Like, you know, how, you're the one doing it out there. Have you, you know, how do you feel about it? Is it more risky? I feel like there's more potential to make a bigger profit, right? And when you're in an expensive market, so if you're buying homes for 80,000, you can't make a hundred thousand profit if that's like the ARV, the, you know, and you're buying them less than that. So I right. feel like here, it seems a little bit more risky, like you said, because there's more money involved, but honestly, the higher up you go, the more margins you can make. So that was only at like a three, $400,000 price point when our three bedroom homes right now are a million dollars. So I think it's worth the risk, but it's a calculated risk, right? There's the inventory is super low. You can see days on market. So I think looking at those uh, aspects of the market, like talking to a realtor, seeing what their um, the people in that area are trying to get and then go for those. So everybody's trying to get single family homes and things like that, but the million dollar mark or like higher end luxury, I would say is risky, but not the median home price and going into those markets here. How can someone that is not on the island and is maybe looking to have a home to flip for themselves on the island, what's the best way to do that? So like, let's say someone's living in Colorado and they're like, I really want to be able to buy a home in Hawaii, but I know that I don't want to pay top dollar. I want to, I want to get a flip, you know, a, a burr property or a flip property. What's the best way to do that? Is it, it's probably really hard, I would assume. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not easy, but you, yeah. same thing like you tell everybody else, right? Look for the foreclosures, look for, because it's crazy here. So I just, uh, refinance out of a property that in January appraised at 725 and in October, so 10 months later, appraised at a million dollars. So by doing wow. nothing to the property, it gained $300,000 in equity. Just holding. Yes. So even if you buy at today's current market price, maybe a little bit below because it needs some renovations, here, it's all about holding long-term, probably like it is in California, right? You buy something, you hold it for a little bit, it probably just gain appreciation because the price point is already so high. So that's what I would suggest doing, just buying something you know, that is a foreclosure or maybe even something smaller. A lot of people that move here kind of have to downsize because you know it's a high price market. So buying something a little bit smaller that needs a little bit of work that will potentially, you know, gain a lot of equity by just keeping it the year or two. And then if you decide to leave or sell it, at least you won't have to pay 
the capital gains tax on what you make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Go ahead, Yo. Oh, I was gonna ask. So you did a so you did those flips. At what point did you decide to basically say, hey, you know what? I'm making 70k at my engineering job, but now I'm gonna quit and be and start doing real estate full time. Well, it probably well, I just quit in 2020 and it was right before the pandemic, but it was more so it was the end of the year. And I was talking with my husband like, hey, this basically already replaces my income. Do I need to, you know, do we still need the stability? And it was actually him that was like, okay, you got to decide, is it worth, why are you sticking at your job? And for me, it was stability in my mind at that time. And then also health insurance. And if anything were to come up, at least I'd always have somewhere to go back to. And so for him, he was like, okay, how much is your health, the health insurance? And I said, it's $1,800 a month for family. And we get like a higher, you know, quality healthcare. We opt for that one. So that's why it was a little bit more expensive that our company covered. And so he's like, you're going to let $1,800 a month stop you from, you know, pursuing your dreams, having more freedom, having more flexibility with the kids and me. And I said, you're right. So that was kind of the light bulb that went off. And I tell people all the time, they're like, okay, how did you know when? And, and I already had rentals at that point, And I was already up to probably about $6,000 net cash flow a month. So right. even that I felt comfortable. Okay. Even if this flipping thing doesn't work out or something happens, I still have this little nest egg that's still going to be coming in for my family and me. I think that's important, Sasha. Two things there. One, your communication with your husband is crucial. And it sounds like a lot of successful real estate investors that are married that I realize talk about things with their husband and spouse. A lot of the times when I see tension, it's because did you communicate to your husband that, or your wife that this is how you feel about the situation? I'm not a counselor by any means. I just know real estate. If you're not open to communicate with your spouse or business partner in regards to the flipping, wholesaling, or long-term rental, it's going to be a little difficult. So I love that you kept talking about, like, I talked to my husband, I asked him, I told him, I mentioned, like, there's a lot of communication going on and you made decisions together. Again, not a counselor, but I feel like business, right? Even, even with Diego and I, we have a lot of communication in a lot of the businesses that we do. I tell him that I talked to, I talked to him more than I talked to my wife. Right. But it's important to have that communication, um, especially with your business partner, but even more, I think, with your spouse, because at the end of the day, that's what we're doing it for our families. Right. And then the second right, thing that I was going to say, the second thing I was going to say, always on the same page. Right. So when I do bring things up to him, he's he's a little bit more nervous and then vice versa. When he brings things to me, I'm a little bit more cautious and nervous because I it's not what I'm doing and I'm not in it on the daily. So don't right. everything it's like this is it, it's not so easy to to agree on things, but the fact that you're just bringing it up and if it's something you strongly believe and you believe that yeah. you know your husband or your spouse or your wife should have your back or or should be supporting you, then that's what you need to communicate to them how strongly you feel about this and that you've done all your homework. You know, you know you're it's always a calculated risk. However, if it's going to bring overall happiness to your life and to your family, then they're more than likely going to be on board. I love that. And the second thing that I was going to say, you're right. The communication has to happen, but it's not always easy. I I, I wasn't alluring to the like, it's always going to be easy. That's not, that's not what I was saying. Definitely. It's going to be rough, but you have to communicate whether it's hard or whether it's easy, you have to communicate because that's what's going to get you long term, right? 
Um, and then the second thing I was going to say was I love that you mentioned your nest egg. I think a lot of people are afraid to do Airbnb or flipping or wholesaling or, or, or venture out into more, um, you could say, riskier uh, um, real estate related projects. But I always tell people, like, just make sure you have your nest egg, right? Build enough cash flow. Flip with a purpose. Flip with a purpose to buy cash flow. Wholesale to, for the purpose of getting some cash flow to fall back on. Don't just flip to flip, in my opinion. And I might be wrong. Like some people might build businesses around flipping and that's fine. But in my opinion, you should always have that nest egg like you talked about. Yeah, I, I, I can do a million dollar flip, but it's because I have this cash flow coming in. Yes, I can be a little bit more risky and, and maybe I can risk an extra 20, 30 grand on this flip because I know I have cash flow if it doesn't pay off. So there's like power in flipping for what though? Like why are you learning to flip? Why are you learning to wholesale? You have to be, in my opinion, again, just me, you got to have a reason as to why you're doing it versus just, oh, well, I'm flipping to pay the next bills because then you're just going to always have to flip or always have to wholesale. And, and personally, in my opinion, I like to wholesale to fund more deals or to fund more real estate for myself, more cash flow. I'm not looking just to wholesale, just to wholesale. Um, so there's always like that why behind it. So I love that you said like you have your, your, your nest egg and all that. Yeah. And that's what I'm continuously building right now. And when I do flip with people, I do it through partnerships and things like that, where I'm not too, uh, it doesn't work for us to keep things long-term or the numbers don't work long-term, then I flip it. But if it works as a buy and hold, then I'll definitely keep it. And so right now my focus is, you know, 20 K a month net passive income. And however I get to that number, you know, whether I got to flip more to buy more rentals or go into Airbnbs or get more long-term multifamilies. I just kind of flexible and fluid with that. And like you said, now we can take a little bit more risk because we have that, you know, passive income already coming in. So we can try new things. I love it. I agree hundred percent. Now, um, you mentioned that you are doing some of the partnerships. What has, how have you partnered up with people? What did you bring to the table as a partner? And what did you quote unquote outsource from that perspective? So a lot of times right now I tell people, they're like, how do you get your deals? It's all through referrals or partnerships. I honestly don't do much cold calling or texting. It's either agents bringing me pocket listings or other investors bringing me deals and wanting to learn. And so that's how I've been partnering. I They bring me the deal and then I either find the money, source the money, and then walk them through the project management, bring my connections in contracting, bring um, whatever else is needed, my title companies, all my entire network to them and show them how each step goes. And then if they want to work with me again, they do. If not, they do their own thing. But I kind of I like that part of it is partnering and then helping them grow into their own. And then also I've partnered with other people who just want, you know, they want to bring the deal and me to handle everything after that. So if it's my money that I'm bringing, if it's me raising private capital, that's kind of what I bring to the table in that fact. And then I've also partnered with other contractors. So if they can give me a really good deal and the numbers, you know, are so close that if I work with them, they could take, you know, more of the project management roles and I don't have to be there so often or oversee everything, then I'd rather, you know, maybe make the same amount of money or maybe even a little bit more by partnering with contractors. So that's something that I don't really hear people bring up is using that avenue. But again, in my market, it's a high price point. So the labor and materials is like a huge chunk of the project that will 
can basically make or break you. And now, you know, we have to have things shipped in, flown in. So even the holding costs can get you as well. So if a contractor can bring in a little bit of that or I pay them out at the end, you know, it's it really makes a difference in the overall profit of the project. And relationship sounds like it's huge. You're like, how do I get my deal? It's relationship. And it's about being honest and being good with your word regarding work, regarding payments, all that. And that's huge because you've built those relationships where people now bring you deals. And that's kind of what happens to me now, honestly, with my houses in Antioch or where I live. Um, people send me opportunities um, or people know that I'm the guy that buys certain types of homes. So anytime one of those comes up, I'm, I'm kind of first call. So I, I do love that. And like also some of my lenders, even some of my realtors, like just relationships is huge. Diego says not your next um, how, but it's your next who. And that's what really sets you apart. So Zasha, I love that, especially in Hawaii. I'm sure the market there is insanely competitive. Um, so I, I'm sure that relationships is massive in uh, in that regard. Um, before we get out of here, though, I'm curious. What uh, tell us a little bit more about how you've built those relationships and how you've nurtured them into a position where they do call you first? Because that's important for people to know that you you know time is huge in real estate. You got You got to be on it. So how do you um, how do you how do you how do you build those relationships? Well, I think I come from a really genuine place to in doing this. Like I don't actually even need to be flipping or investing or, you know, of course, I want to build passive income and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I want to do what is the best solution for whoever is involved. So whether that's the seller and they're in a bind and their best solution might be to list, I connect them with realtors. If a realtor is like, okay, could you offer it? This guy has all this stuff in his house. He, did, he can't afford to move to someplace else. Is there any way you can work with him so that you can get him off his feet, buy his house? So there's many situations where people come to me where I kind of problem solve, right? And that's what we do as investors. But I don't come at it as like, I'll offer you cash. I'm a cash buyer. You know, I don't, I don't really my whole thing is to make a connection with somebody and however I can help them. And even other sellers who are like, you know, have all these broken down cars in the front of their house. I said, I go to them and I say, Hey, um, did you know the County has a program where they will tow the cars for free? You just have to call this number, you know, and then if you're ever thinking of selling your house, then of course, here's my card as well. So I come with adding value to people first and that's how, I'm feeling like it's coming, you know, 360 comes back around to me. And at the same time, too, I don't have to do so many deals a year to make a good amount of profit. So I'm not having to constantly, you know, go out there and market. It's just, you know, when good deals come my way, then I take them. Yeah. I love and that. How many deals have you done so far uh, since you started? Because I believe you started in 2018 or 2019. 2019. So total, I've probably done maybe about 20. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what, uh, what are your goals in 2022 on your real estate side? So real estate, like I said, build that passive income, 20K mm -hmm. per month. And now I'm feeling like since I just bought my first Airbnb um, a few weeks ago and we're under renovations, I'm going to kind of see how that plays out because I have nine long-term rentals. And I know the cash flow is good. It's steady, but just the difference in the net, what you can net using uh, doing short-term rentals is huge. So if I can get to that passive income number faster through Airbnbs, then that's the way that I'm going to go. That'd be awesome. That's we awesome. should connect Zasha with Diana. Diana is our short-term rental micro tribe leader in Rat Race. She's got like 50 members in her micro tribe. 
she is now like an Airbnb ambassador. She's all about teaching other girls and guys how to do Airbnb like the way she does it very successfully. And what's cool is like she started investing in real estate, uh, long-term rentals out of state. She did a couple of different places, um, but she works with the community as part of her job in her state. Uh, I won't say too much about what she does, but she works with the community. Um, so when she found Airbnb in real estate, she was like, oh, this is huge. I, she fell in love because she was able to incorporate her passion of helping people and real estate. And she's just, I mean, she's ran with it, right? And she loves it because she can help people that are on vacation that maybe are a stressful situation or, or hey, this isn't working. Oh, I got it. Like, like she loves and she's passionate about helping people. And she's just incorporated that now with real estate and she's having huge success. Yeah, I would love to meet her. And I think yeah, that's another thing that I didn't I didn't really touch on is the reason why I was focusing on long term rentals before is because I grew up in affordable housing. And so now a majority of my renters are on Section 8 and a lot of people have, you know, um, a little bit of hold back on renting to Section 8. But I feel like it's just like any other you know, renter that you'll get. You just have to vet them. And so I find I feel like I've I've given uh, back enough on that end that I kind of want to try short term rentals, do the vacation thing. I even want to stay at a short term rental of my own. So hopefully one day I can. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, where can people find you? Um, Instagram. I'm I'm really active on Instagram at Invest with Sasha. Um, I'm trying to get on TikTok and all these other things and YouTube. I have this whole set up here that I'm getting ready. So there's more things to come in the future. However, right now, I'm very, I love to help people and anybody who reaches out to me, I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. I love that. You are very responsive on social media. So we appreciate that. Zasha, any last words for our guests before we get out of here? Yes. Um, change your mindset and change your life. I feel like that has been huge for me last year and coming into this year is changing your mindset to believe that you can achieve anything and you'll figure out a way. I love it. I love it. Sasha, thank you so much for jumping on the Rat Race to Five podcast. We really appreciate your time. I think it was super valuable and people are really going to have to listen to this a couple of times to get all the nuggets out of it. Um, enjoy the weather in Hawaii. And again, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Aloha. The Rat Race to Five podcast where we discuss money, mindset, real estate investing, and ways to achieve financial independence. Whether you are a rookie or a veteran needing new ideas for investing or creating side hustles, you're in the right place.